If you've got a Bible with you, you're going to want to open it up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to finish chapter 7 today, which is verses 36 down to 50, the fourth of four consecutive interactions that Jesus has with either an individual or a group of individuals. While you get yourself uh, situated in there, I just want to make sort of a quick kind of statement in one shot here so that we avoid a bunch of maybe potentially separate individual conversations. And that's just to say that the leadership team is aware of the changes that Clay County Public Health Center pushed out on Friday in relation to COVID protocols, recommendations, requirements, et cetera. Um, We meet tomorrow night. And so the leadership team will spend some time discussing those, what it means for our programs, for our services, for the various protocols that we have in place. And then at some point, our staff will take that and talk about how to kind of take what the leadership team decides and implement it into all the various areas of our church. And then some point after that this week, we'll communicate with you what that means uh, if, it, if we end up making some changes or whatever. So you will hear from us um, about that. Uh, we are as ready as anybody for all of this to be over. The leadership team is um, a group of, they vol- they're volunteers. They're individuals from within our church. And they've done a fantastic job of trying to help navigate our church through the last year. And trust me, uh, if it would just be over, that leadership team would be as happy as anyone in this congregation that it's all over. Um, And so we've had a particular kind of stance on this whole thing throughout, and that's to be sensitive toward uh, the vulnerable in our own congregation, to be sensitive toward our community at large, to take the recommendations and the requirements, the guidelines from the county, and to be obedient to those and to follow those. Um, We're going to continue with that. We're going to try to dismount this pandemic uh, in the same fashion that we entered into the whole thing. And so we'll communicate with you. The only thing we ask in return is that you continue to be gracious with us as we like try to get to the finish line of this thing. Sound good? Awesome. Um, I'm just going to jump, I'm going to jump right into this. No like cute opening illustration. Let's just read Luke 7, 36 to 50. If you've got it there in front of you, uh, this is what it says. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. That's Jesus to eat with the Pharisee. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee, who had invited, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Uh, Given what we know about brothers and sisters in other countries around the world, given what the last year has been, God, I pray that we don't ever forget the blessing that it is to just be able to be together as a church, to sing This Is Amazing Grace, and to just celebrate and cherish the truth of what you've done on our behalf to open up your word and to see your grace in action in the life of Jesus on the pages of scripture. God, it's a blessing to get to do that together. I pray this morning, God, help us to see your grace in all of its bigness and in all of its wonder and in all of its beauty and in all of its glory this morning, God. And if that's seeing it for the 
hundred thousandth time because we've been walking with you for a long time, then I pray that we would see it and be as astounded by it as we were the very first time. God, if that's seeing and hearing of your grace for the very first time this morning, uh, God, I pray that you would take the truth of your word, press it into people's hearts, God, and that there would be some who for, for them today is a day that changes their life and changes their eternity forever. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your words, bring them to life, be present in our hearts to challenge and convict, to encourage. God, be present to open our eyes to see clearly who it is that you are and what it is that you've done on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how we're going to do this this morning. We're going to do a little bit on the front end here of like context, what's going on in the story, because that's going to help us understand the passage a little bit better. Then rather than taking the passage and going kind of verse by verse, starting in 36 and just working in order down to 50, we're going to take it in its parts. So there's a parable in the middle. We'll work with the parable. Then we'll look at the woman who's present in the account. Then we'll look at the Pharisee who's present in the account. We're going to see Jesus all throughout it. And then we'll end by saying, what does this mean for us today? And here's the landing point. The landing point is that our love for Jesus and for others is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus's pardon. If you're a note taker and you're jotting that down, underline the word perception. That is going to be the key today. Our love for Jesus and our love for others is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus's pardon. Some context. I want to talk about Pharisees for a second. If you've been in church very long, you've read the Gospels, we've got a general idea of who the Pharisees were. We've got some sort of like general conception of the fact that they come into clash with Jesus and that they've got these legalistic sort of hearts that Jesus is always bringing to the surface. He's exposing the truth of that. There's a little bit more to the Pharisees. In fact, it's important to understand a little bit more about the Pharisees because the danger is that knowing that the Pharisees are sort of like the foil to Jesus, if you will, it's easy for us to write the Pharisees off. When we see them in any account, it's easy for us to say, well, clearly the Pharisees are just wrong. They're terrible. They always are missing the point. And once we do that, it's then very easy for us to assume that in any given account, we couldn't possibly be the Pharisee. We become kind of Pharisees about Pharisees, if you will. It's very easy for us to do that. So who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees are this group of people at the time of Jesus who are a religious sect, meaning that they have a very particular system that they tell people for relating to God. How is it that a human being relates to God? And the Pharisees came about in the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why in the Old Testament, you never hear about the Pharisees. They didn't exist. As a group, they weren't present during Old Testament times. The gap between the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament is when the Pharisees as a group sort of come into power. And they say, this is the way that you relate to God. But they're also a social kind of sect. They're not only saying, here's how you relate to God. They're also saying, here's how you behave in life. It's a system for daily living. And now the Pharisees get a bad rap, but both of those things are good desires. How is it that you rightly relate to God? And how is it that you faithfully take his word in the Old Testament at that time and apply it to daily life, being obedient to that? Those are good desires. Neither one of those in and of themselves is wrong. They're also a philosophical sect. Josephus, who was a historian in Rome back in antiquity, he writes about the three big philosophical sects that exist in the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees are one of those three. So a system for just how do you think about life? How do you answer the big questions about who we are, what's going on here? It's a system of thought. And then last, the Pharisees are a political sect. It's a system for influence. That's why when you get to the end of the Gospels, you see the Pharisees able to exert their influence over the powers that be at time, Herod and Pilate, to have Jesus crucified. They've got political influence. And it's not because the Pharisees are such a huge group. It's because the Pharisees wield influence over such a large group of people, the Israelites. And so the pressure of that causes them to have the ability to wield some influence with the political forces of the day. Those are the Pharisees. None of those four things in and of themselves are bad. 
Note that when we think about Jesus coming into confrontation with the Pharisees, he never says, your desires are awful. It's wrong for you to want to explain to people how to relate to God. It's wrong for you to want to help people understand how to live daily life. It's wrong for you to have answers to the big questions of life. He never says that. The problem is the root. Something goes awry with the Pharisees that makes them legalistic so that those things become the means by which someone is made right before God. That's where they get themselves off. And so there's clash between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus pushes back on all four aspects of this. He says, there's a different system for relating to God than just keeping the rules. He says, there's a different way to live in life rather than just keeping the rules. It's about the heart. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. There's a different way to think about the big questions of life. And things really get intense for Jesus and the Pharisees at the end of his life when it feels like Jesus has more influence over a large group of people than the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start clutching after power. That's gonna send Jesus ultimately to the cross. That's who the Pharisees are. Again, where the rubber meets the road for us is that the Pharisees are such a caricature at this point for the American church, if you've been in the church for a long time, of what it is to be legalistic and harsh and self-justifying and self-satisfying, self-saving, that becomes very hard for us to consider where we might be a little bit pharisaical in our own hearts and attitudes and actions. But remember, all of these gospel accounts where Jesus is interacting with a person, the writers of the gospels, God and his word, want to show us something about Jesus, but also we... We need to identify with someone in the story, and it's usually not Jesus. So in this particular account, that leaves us two options, the woman or the Pharisees. And the truth of the matter is, in this particular account, it's probably not one or the other. If you've been walking with Jesus for very long, you ought to see probably a little bit of yourself in the woman, actually a bunch of yourself in the woman, and probably more than is comfortable in the Pharisees. So we'll see that as we go. The second piece of context that's important is to understand a house at this time. When we read this story and a woman shows up to a dinner party, we immediately think of like what homes look like today. So there's a dinner party going on at some house in your cul-de-sac, right? And you hear about this woman who comes in. Well, she must have walked up to the door of this like nice colonial or two-story or ranch or whatever it was, known who was inside swung the door open, walked through the entryway, through some sort of living room area, possibly through a kitchen, into the dining room. There was Jesus seated in a chair at a table, and she got down on the ground by his feet. It's, it's no one's fault. That's just how we think about something like this. But a home in that time was very, very different. It was structured around a courtyard, usually. You know how in your house when it's hot, but you're not ready to turn the air conditioner on yet? You get like windows open on both sides so you get that nice cross breeze going through the house. Yeah, it's hot in this region of the world. And so the houses are literally built in with that cross breeze, courtyard in the middle, open on the sides so that air can move through. And when a prominent figure would come into a town, it was common for the leaders in that town to invite that person over for dinner. So here's Jesus, this teacher who's gaining a lot of popularity. And so the Pharisee in town says, I'm gonna have him over for dinner. Typically, these dinner parties would happen in the courtyard. So when somebody's walking by on the street, you can see who's eating in there. Think about the account where Levi has been called to follow Jesus, leaves his tax collecting booth, goes to follow Jesus, and has all of his tax collector and sinner friends over for dinner. How do the Pharisees know who's at dinner? They can see it. The Pharisees weren't invited. The tax collectors and sinners were invited. The Pharisees can see from the street into the courtyard who's eating dinner there. The same thing happens with this woman. She's walking by. We're told in verse 49, there's more than just Simon the Pharisee and Jesus there. She can see into the courtyard. There's Jesus eating dinner at this Pharisee's house. And then the rest of the story kind of plays out in a very straightforward sort of manner. The Pharisee can't believe that Jesus would let this woman touch him. Jesus reads the Pharisee's thoughts or hears what the Pharisee mumbles to himself. One or the other is the case. 
gives a parable about debtors and a creditor, asks the Pharisee a question. The Pharisee answers the question. Jesus looks at the woman, talks to the Pharisee. The woman's sin is forgiven. She's saved. Let's take the pieces of that now. And remember, our love for Jesus and for others is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus' pardon. Start with the parable, verses 41 and 42. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. The parable is pretty simple. This is about as straightforward as one of Jesus' parables gets. There's a person with a large debt, 500 denarii. There's a person with a small debt, 50 denarii. Let's call that $500,000 and $50,000. They've got the same creditor, and in a moment of what Jesus calls gracious forgiveness, he wipes out both debts. So Jesus asks Simon, which person is going to love the creditor more? And Simon says, I suppose the one he forgave more. Now give Simon a little bit of credit here. Again, it's easy for us to just write the Pharisees off. He answers correctly. Jesus says, you have answered correctly, right? Bingo. But even Simon is wise to the fact that Jesus must be pushing for more than that answer. I suppose the one he forgave more. But I think you must be driving at something different. So it's easy for us to just say the Pharisees, they never get it. Simon's on to something here. He's just not entirely sure what it is. But the point's right on the surface. The point of the parable is just right there. And in fact, I don't know what your Bible like heading is for this section, but in the CSB, it says much forgiveness, much love. That's the point of the parable. Those who are forgiven much, love much. The rest of the story illustrates that what is really at question is the perception of how much you've been forgiven. That's what really is being driven at. The problem's not one of understanding for Simon the Pharisee. The problem is one of perception. Because what Jesus is really driving at is not the answer to the question itself, but instead Simon's perception of himself and his perception of the woman. Simon's perception of Jesus and the woman's perception of Jesus. So think about the woman for a second. You get two kind of like big chunks about her. You get her arriving at the party in verses 37 and 38 and what she does. And then you get Jesus's explanation of what she did in verses 44 to 48. And I wish we could call this woman by her name. We can't. I think it's intentional. But this is a real woman who really experienced what happens in this passage. This is a real woman who, based on what Jesus says, is really going to be present for all of eternity with the Lord, and those who are saved are really going to be able to interact with her. Like, that's what we're talking about. She doesn't get a name. She gets a description. The description is given three different times. The first time it comes out of the mouth of Luke in verse 37. He's narrating the account, a woman in the town who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was having dinner at a Pharisee's house. Then it comes out of the mouth of Simon, the Pharisee, in verse 39. As he's thinking or muttering to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Then it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. You're supposed to understand that this woman has a reputation. It's not a good one. She's known throughout the town, but what she's known for is her sin. It follows her around. Travels in her wake, sticks to her like glue. She is like Hester Prynne from the Scarlet Letter, right? You see this woman in this town and everybody knows who she is. It's like she's wearing the letter around her neck that tells everyone, this is my sin. And the overtones of the passage in the original language are that the sin is sexual in nature. Most likely that she was, she was a prostitute. And so in the eyes of the people of this town, this woman is her sin. And so see what she does for Jesus. 
sees that he's there at dinner in the courtyard of the Pharisee's home, and having seen him, she goes back to her house. She grabs this alabaster jar. She goes into the house. She's standing there at Jesus' feet. And the way that they reclined at the table, she would have walked up kind of behind the table. And Jesus isn't seated in a chair. His feet are kind of laid out behind him in a reclining stance. So she's bent over his feet, but she's not all the way on the ground like we would have to get on the ground for a person's feet. The posture, she's, she's slumped over and she's weeping. And we're told that she's weeping enough, she's crying enough that her tears are able to wash Jesus's feet, right? This isn't like a trickle. This is an ugly cry. She's bawling there in the presence of Jesus, so much so that her tears are dripping onto his feet and she's using her hair to dry his feet as they're washed with her tears and she's taking the perfume out of this alabaster jar and she's anointing Jesus's feet while she kisses them. The perfume, potentially the very same thing that she used as a means to be attractive in the eyes of men, right? She's got it there with Jesus, but now it's not an act, it's not an item of like lust or seduction, it's an item of adoration and worship. She went and she got the very best thing she had and she brought it and she literally put it at the feet of Jesus, And it's like she's in this room, this courtyard full of people, and all she sees is Jesus. It's like nobody else is in the room. And then think of the other side. It's like all anybody else sees is the woman. And when they see the woman, what they mostly see is her sin. So the woman's there, and Jesus is the only thing that she sees. Like, she's consumed with the presence of Jesus there, and everyone else is consumed with the presence of this sinful woman. Sometimes it's really helpful to sort of ask yourself questions about a passage that you're reading. And so these are three questions that I asked myself as I was working with this over the course of the week. Question number one, in the parable, who does the Pharisee think owes 500 denarii, right? He's wise to what's happening here. Simon's a smart guy. He says, I suppose the person who was forgiven more. Now he's looking at what's playing out around him, and who does he think owes the 500 denarii? Yeah, Simon says, raise your hand if it's the woman. Yeah, the woman, right? Like, he's looking around, everybody else is looking around, they're hearing what Jesus said, they're watching this woman, and it's like, ah, I get it. She owed a lot. She's got 500 denarii kind of sin. Question number two. In the parable, who does the woman think owes 500 denarii? Her. Like she gets it. I have 500 denarii kind of sin. This man has forgiven me. Simon knows This woman is the big debtor. The woman knows, hi, I'm the big debtor. So then the third question is, what about Jesus? If everybody else in the room looks at the woman and sees her sin, when Jesus looks at the woman, what does he see? Her sin? That answer can't entirely be no. Jesus knows everyone's sin. So he knows the sin of this woman, obviously. He's aware of who this woman is, but her sin is no deterrent. Her sin isn't something that Jesus has revulsion toward, like everyone else in the room. Her sin is not the defining aspect of who she is. What Jesus sees is the love that the woman has for him, displayed in her actions. And so the defining thing for Jesus is not the woman's sin, it's the woman's love. Simon, who's going to love the creditor more? Well, the person with the bigger debt. And so Simon looks at the woman and says, well, it's got to be her. And the woman says, well, yeah, it's got to be me, (laughs) right? Here's the good news. And it's one thing you, you, you can just lift out of this passage. It's one thing you can lift out of every interaction that Jesus has with the person who's branded as a sinner all throughout the Gospels. 
And that truth is that in the hands of Jesus, we're more than the sum of our sin. We're the grateful recipients of his grace. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you're more than the sum of your sin. I mean, what a glorious truth. I don't know what was in everybody's past. I don't know what's in everybody's present. I have no idea what's to come in everybody's future. But I know for absolute certainty that those who are held in the hands of Jesus are more than the sum of their sin. That he knows the absolute mountain of debt that you have to him. And yet that's not what defines you in his eyes. And maybe you've not ever received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin and you sit here today under the burden of all that you feel like you're kind of trapped under in your sin. You sit here and think everybody else's eyes must be on me because they probably know all of the sin that I have. You're not the sum of that. Like you're so much more. And if you're walking with Jesus, you're the grateful recipient of his grace. And if you're not walking with Jesus, you can be the grateful recipient of his grace today. And the weight of your sin is not a deterrent to him. In fact, it is the presence of humanity's sin that caused Jesus to come here in the first place. And it's the presence of sin that compels him toward people when he's on the earth. And it compels him toward people today. And so your sin is a prerequisite for his grace. Like if you don't have any sin... Jesus has nothing to offer you. But we all do have sin. And so what he has is grace. The Pharisee. You get kind of pieces with the Pharisee. In verses 39 and 40, he gives Jesus like the window to give the the, uh, parable. Then he answers the parable. But really it's at the end where you're kind of left in a lurch a little bit about the Pharisee. Most of the attention in the story goes to the woman. Our attention goes to the woman. The attention of the guests that are there goes to the woman. The Pharisee, Simon's attention, it goes to the woman. But not Jesus. Jesus is equally focused on Simon the Pharisee as he is on the woman who is just branded the sinner. So much so that Jesus is either paying attention when Simon mutters to himself in verse 39, or he's actually reading the thoughts in the heart of Simon. And so Jesus tells this story, and Simon instantly understands it. The woman is in big debt. The bigger debtor is going to love the creditor more. And so we can cut Simon a little bit of slack. He's got Jesus over to the house. We don't know why he invited Jesus. Maybe the motive was all bad. He's trying to prove that this guy's not a prophet. Maybe there was some good in the motive. Maybe it was mixed, as most motives typically are. He's listening and he's paying attention to Jesus. He gets the thrust of what Jesus is trying to say, but what he doesn't understand is his debt. Right? He doesn't understand that he would have debt like the woman. And so we villainize the Pharisees so much that it becomes impossible for us to be willing to identify with ourselves with them. But hang with me. When our primary focus is on the vileness of the sin of others, we become blind. We become blind to our own ongoing sin. We become blind to the power of Jesus' pardon on our behalf. We become blind to the kindness of Jesus toward those who are still slave to their sin. We become so blind that we think that we're judge rather than joyfully released defendant. And so a pharisaical heart always sees others' sin as a bigger issue than their own. That is Simon's problem. There's the perception gap. The woman has 500 denarii debt. Maybe not me. The issue at hand is perception of who Jesus is and the debt that he wipes out. And so when the whole story ends, we're certain about the woman. She's been saved. Jesus says that herself or himself. Her sin has been forgiven. Her love was evident, which means her perception of the power of Jesus' pardon was accurate. But when Jesus starts talking about the woman has done, he sets it at odds with what Simon has done. And Simon hasn't shown basic hospitality at the time. 
You didn't give me water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. The woman, on the other hand, she's washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. She's not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. She's anointed my feet with perfume. The woman is gushing over Jesus' presence. The Pharisee thinks the woman has 500 denarii debt. The woman knows the woman has 500 denarii debt. Jesus knows the woman has 500 denarii debt. Jesus knows the Pharisee has 500 denarii debt. The Pharisee thinks the Pharisee maybe has 50 denarii debt. Maybe. Jesus knows, but the Pharisee's perception is totally blind. And so the Pharisee's troubled by the woman. You read the parable and you're left kind of troubled by the Pharisee. Like, how's this guy not get it? Meanwhile, Jesus is just concerned that everybody understands the debt that they have that his compassion and his grace can forgive. And so what Jesus says in the parable is that you can tell who understands that power and grace to forgive based on the way we respond to Jesus. Our love is what displays that we perceive his pardon correctly. Our love for Jesus and for others is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus' pardon. So let me take the first two pieces of that. Our love for Jesus and our love for others. What does this passage mean for us today? Our love for Jesus, that is the primary thing that's at, uh, on display in the passage. That's what's in view and it needs to be the primary picture that we keep in view. You can tell if we understand exactly what Jesus has done for us based on the way that we love Jesus. There's an interesting wrinkle in the passage that's super important for being able to understand it correctly. So let me just read through it quickly again and ask yourself the following question. What came first? The woman's love or Jesus's forgiveness? One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And, the woman, and a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is that is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered him, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. You read it carefully, you realize Jesus and this woman have had an interaction in the past. This woman saw Jesus at the table, remembered what he had done for her in forgiving her sins, went back to her house, got the alabaster jar, came back to the dinner party, walked right into the house, through the courtyard, up to the table, and began worshiping Jesus, adoring him and lavishing love upon him because she had been forgiven and she knows the mountain of sin debt that she has that he's wiped clean for her. And so, does Jesus know who's touching him? Yeah. A forgiven woman. That's who's touching Jesus. And so Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Simon thinks to himself, of course I see her. She's grabbing everybody's attention. But Jesus' question is, do you really see this woman? The debt has been graciously forgiven. 
she loves in response proportionately to her perception of the power of Jesus' pardon. So our love for Jesus is proportionate to that. The longer we walk with Jesus, the larger his pardon should become in our eyes. The larger his pardon should become in our hearts and in our minds because the longer we walk with Jesus, the more clearly we should understand the depth of our sin and just how much he has done to forgive us. This is a common chart. Um, comes out of a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. It's used in various forms all over the place, but left to right is a timeline where it splits is like where a person comes to know Jesus and in the life of a follower of Jesus, the way things ought to play out is that over time, we understand that our sin would have us further and further and further and further from God and that God's holiness is greater and greater and greater and greater as we get to know him and that that gap seems bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the bigger the cross becomes and the bigger grace seems and the more glorious his love for us seems and the larger his mercy is to us. And so we become more and more and more and more like the woman. Because we understand in our sin that we're like the woman. We understand in Jesus' forgiveness that he is Jesus and our love for him becomes more and more lavish. That is how walking with Jesus ought to operate. The longer we walk with him, the softer our hearts should become. The clearer we should come to understand the depth of our sin. The tighter we should cling to what he's done for us. The sweeter his forgiveness should taste. While walking with Jesus for a lifetime helps us understand the reality of sin and its its devastating impacts on the world around us, it also ought to help us see more and more clearly the reality of sin and its devastating impacts on all of our thoughts and all of our motivations and our words and our actions. One commentator that I read while I was working on this over the course of the week and has stuck with me all week made a comment, and I'm paraphrasing, that essentially you have forgotten more of your own sins than you will ever know sins in another person's life. And the Holy Spirit is good and gracious to show us the reality of our sin and its depth over the course of our lives and then not to leave us hanging and stewing in that, not that we would just think really lowly of ourselves, but that we would think much of Jesus. Because the more clearly we understand our sin, the bigger the cross gets. The longer we walk with Jesus, it ought to be the case that we see ourselves more and more in the woman, both in our sin and in what Jesus has done for us, and in how we love him. What can happen, though, is the second version of this chart. It's that time goes on, we come to know Jesus, we're seeing the truth and the depth of our sin, we're seeing the reality of God's holiness, and somewhere along the line, we become a little pharisaical. And either my sin's not that bad, And so we start thinking that we could just perform our way to our own salvation, that really what Jesus did was died for my sin, but now I'm actually good enough that I would have earned either his death or my righteousness anyway. Or we start to think less of the holiness of God, that my sin wasn't really that offensive to God to begin with. And we start pretending like we're holier than we really are. The sides of that, there's the heart of a Pharisee. Jesus' grace kind of gets stunted for us. The cross doesn't look bigger and bigger and bigger. It just kind of is what it is. And I'm holier and holier and holier. And therefore, I'm like the Pharisee, 50 denarii debt. And Jesus died to forgive me, but I'm pretty good. And our love will be proportionate to that. I've had the privilege of being discipled by three men over like the last decade or so. One, his name is Dave. He was the supervisor at the first church that I was a youth pastor at right when I came out of college. The second is uh, a man named Scott. He was my supervisor here uh, when I first came on staff. Then he went, pastored a church over in St. Louis and he's been back with us Um, for coming up on a year-ish now. 
The third is Merle Meese, who is the pastor over at Pleasant Valley Baptist Church. One of the things that has been uh, maybe more impactful than any of the advice that they've ever given me, any of the insight that they've ever given me, uh, any of the profound things that they've said, and there are a lot of them, one of the things that's had the largest effect on me is the fact that when you get any one of the three of them into a conversation about Jesus, and they start talking about the truth of what Jesus has done for them, invariably, every single time, with all three of them, their eyes get misty. Like, Jesus looks bigger to them now, and they've, all three have been walking with Jesus for decades. And Jesus is bigger to them now than the moment that he was when they were saved. And he was really big when they got saved because he was big enough to save them, right? But Jesus is bigger now, and the day that they die, he's going to be as big as he's ever been. That is what it is to do the first part of this chart. So our love for Jesus is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus' pardon. But we can't forget or avoid the second implication of this. The issue isn't just that Simon doesn't have the same love for Jesus that the woman has. It is also that Simon doesn't have the same love for the woman that Jesus has. And so this understanding of just how much Jesus has pardoned for us helps us to not only love him proportionally, but it also colors how we look at others. And so this, this is where like, I kind of I trembled at this message all week long because I think we have to be willing to say, okay, Tim, I get it. I, I need to see myself in the woman. But the hard reality is that we also need to be willing to see ourselves in the Pharisee rather than just writing him off. And so my question would be, honestly, ask yourself for a second here, if we took this passage and we gave it to someone outside of the American church who maybe has nothing and wants nothing to do with Christianity, and we had them read the passage and we said, when you think of the American church, do you see the woman or the Pharisee? Who do you think they would respond with? Go back to where I started with about who the Pharisees were. It's a religious sect. There's, hey, here's a system for how you can relate to God. A social sect, here's what that looks like in your behavior. A philosophical sect, here's what we think about the big questions of life. A political sect, here's how we wield influence over the powers of our time. And so if you took this passage and you, you gave it to someone, would they say, yeah, the church seems a little bit more like that sect than it does like the woman. And that's not a new phenomenon. Like that's, it's just something that has become like striking in our world and our society currently. That maybe the church seems way more like the Pharisee than it does the woman. There's a pastor who recently retired from a church in Nashville called Emmanuel Baptist Church. His name is Ray Ortland, and he says this. He says that a theology of grace should breed a culture of grace. It's great to have a really good understanding of the reality of grace, to understand just how much Jesus had pardoned us from, to have a perception of that pardon that's ever-growing, and so our love for Jesus is ever-growing. But what does Jesus say in other places about what the fruit of that understanding should look like? The fruit will display the root. Oh, that our, our world, our country, would not look at the church in America today and see some sort of pharisaical sect, but instead that they would look at the church in America today and what they would see is Jesus. And the way that they're going to see that is when individuals within the church and the church collective and local churches collective throughout the entire country hold up big, beautiful, life-transforming, eternity-changing, wonderful images of Jesus. So that if the worst of sinners that you know walked into this room on a Sunday morning, and they felt like they walked in 
carrying just the letter of their sins written, you know, hanging around their neck, traveling in their wake, stuck to them like glue. And there are sins within our world that carry those connotations today. And if they walked in and they stood in here among us, they wouldn't think all the eyes of these people are upon me, but I'm just trying to look at Jesus and get some of that. They would say, all the eyes of these people are fixed on a really big, beautiful picture of Jesus. And how do I get that? That's what I want. I can't control, you know, what every church in America does. I can't control what the world thinks of every church in America. I can't even control what our community thinks of this church. I can't control what any person inside this church does. But what I can control is what comes from this pulpit every Sunday. And what I want that to be, what I pray that is, is this big, awe-inspiring, love-inducing, life-transforming, eternity-changing, wonderful vision of Jesus that causes us to rally together and say, that that's it. And so I think we need to be willing to hear Jesus say to us today, speaking to the little pharisaical parts of our own hearts, of my own heart. Do you see those people? Like, do you really see them? Not as enemies to be fought against, not as a cultural war to be won. Do you see them in light of the power of my pardon? Do you remember all that I've done for you? I can do that for them, and I want to do that for them. Don't look down on them, help them look up at me. Don't think less of them, help them think much of me. They're not an enemy to you, their sin is an enemy that I have overcome. If only they would receive my grace through faith. A culture built on a theology of grace is a culture of grace. And if what we believe about Jesus doesn't translate into how we live, then Jesus is saying, you've missed it. We love Jesus with all that we are because of what he's done for us. And then we love those around us because of what he can do for them. Our love for Jesus and for others is proportionate to our perception of the power of Jesus' pardon. When we talk about being gospel-centered here at LCF, that's what we're talking about, that we keep the cross and the grace of Jesus before our eyes and hearts and minds all the time. And that the eyes of his, are the, our perception of what he has done on our behalf would grow and grow and grow and grow in our eyes over the course of our lifetime. And then that that would fuel our love for Jesus and fuel our love for other people. So that what people experience when they interact with us as a church is not the Pharisees' condemnation, but Jesus' compassion. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're going we're gonna to close in worship like we always do. And we're going to sing the song, Jesus Paid It All. The bridge of that. Oh, praise the one who did what? Paid my debt. Raised this life up from the dead. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owed. The pharisaical parts of our hearts say, Jesus paid some stuff, I owed a little. The true reality is, his mercy is more. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Yes? Let's sing together. Stand up. The, the good news of the gospel is that uh, that message we just talked about is good news for the woman. It's also good news for the Pharisee. Um, Jesus, at multiple times, is accused by the Pharisees of eating with tax collectors and sinners. So don't miss the irony that Jesus shows up to dinner at the Pharisee's house, Right? And so the same Jesus who has grace and pardon for the woman has grace and pardon for the Pharisee. Which means that even when we see ourselves in the woman and our love for Jesus grows, our love for Jesus can grow if we're willing to see ourselves in the Pharisee at the same time. Because his grace and pardon is just as effective in those corners of our hearts as it is in the other. And so uh, I want us to just close in prayer. And um, my prayer is going to be that the Lord would search us just shine spotlights on those places in our hearts where there's, there's something pharisaical there that he would help us to see our own sin as just as vile as the sin of others. And that he would display to us the truth of his love and that that would help us
to see his grace ever larger. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you that all the things we just sang are absolutely true. That Jesus is better than anything else in the world. That even though we stood under a mountain of debt due to our sin, a mountain of debt due to the sin in our lives that is outward, that the whole world sees that would maybe follow us in our wake like the woman, but also a mountain of debt of sin that's attitudinal and motivational, that exists inside of us like the Pharisee. We could never afford to pay that, and yet, like the creditor in the parable, Jesus has graciously forgiven it. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt, Lord. Would that be the posture and the heart and the cry of every single person in this room who's received your grace by faith in Jesus Christ? And would our vision of what you've done for us grow ever larger the longer we walk with you? And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would search us so that we wouldn't be afraid to acknowledge the places in our own hearts where those pharisaical attitudes exist and that we would see the goodness of Jesus and his grace meeting those. God, I pray that this this church, this church as individuals, this church as a collective, God, that our big, bold, biblical picture of the grace of Jesus would trickle its way deep into our hearts and what goes from our heads to our hearts would come out through our hands and that a culture of grace would be what permeates this place. God, I pray that we would be a people who when those outside of Christianity, those antagonistic toward Christianity, those completely disinterested in Christianity, God, when they interact with this place and with us as a people, what they would experience is a people who have a big understanding of the debt that's been paid on our behalf that colors the way we love Jesus and colors the way we love other people. God, help our love to be proportionate to the perception of the power of your pardon and do that primarily, God, by making our perception accurate. Help us to see the bigness of what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to see the weight of debt that we could never afford that Jesus paid on our behalf and help us to love you in response and to love people accordingly. God, would your Holy Spirit do that in us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Have a great day.